Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Sarah Eisen and Mike Santoli. We're at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Carl and Jim have the morning off. Let's give you a look at futures. Of course, we get started with the final day of trading. You can see we are set up for... I don't know. Usually I defer to somebody else to tell me even what that looks like. Mike, you want to? It's, it's flattish on the S&P. <laughs> there you go. Uh, NASDAQ has a bid, yeah. Thank, that's the kind of insight we look for here at CNBC. <laughs> Let's get to our roadmap this morning. It does begin with this morning's economic data. PPI did come in hotter than expected. It did further complicate, perhaps, that picture for future inflation. Plus, Nike, the latest company announcing job cuts, slashing more than 1,600 positions. And shares of Coinbase are surging in the pre-market after the company posted its first quarterly profit in two years. All right, we do start with this morning's PPI report. 0.3% for the month of January. And I'll turn to Sarah to sort of give us a sense here. We've gotten a CPI and now this. So where do we stand? It was not a great read because what we were hoping going in after the hotter consumer price inflation report is that PPI, which measures the prices in the pipeline, it's business to business. It's not business to consumer. So it's before the price increases that we get from corporations. We were hoping that would be lower and it has been a lot lower than CPI. Now, it is still lower overall year on year. It's only 0.9%. However, it's higher than expected. We were expecting that number to come down. So the 0.3% headline compares to a consensus that was looking for 0.1%. The core, which strips out food and energy, we know the Fed looks at, 0.5% on the month. That was a lot hotter than the 0.1% expected. It was all a story of services. Goods are, are deflating in many categories. And actually, it was good to see that food prices were down as well in that PPI report. But it's services that are the problem. They are sticky. There was a 2.2% increase on the month for hospital outpatient care. That was a big factor in the rise in prices. But you did see it in a number of other categories. So Mike, I think the question now becomes, because after the CPI it was, well, it was just one report, kind of an anomaly. And now the question is, is January an anomaly? Or is there really a reacceleration in the economy and in prices that the Fed and investors should worry about? And, you know, the market's response is kind of interesting because in the two days since that one day sell off we had on the CPI number, yield, yield, bond yields went up, stock market goes down 1.4 percent. We, we recaptured all of it over two days. So it seems like this moderate response we have right here is investors saying, I'm not going to get fooled again. I'm not going to get trapped into selling because we have this uptick in, uh, in an inflation rating. Now, whether that's right or not, obviously remains to be seen. Another factor that I think people had anticipated in the number is portfolio management services. So these financial services metrics, um, because the market's up a lot, Just and therefore people's market. portfolio balances are up a lot, and therefore the fees they pay are up a lot. That's not something that people get too excited about because obviously you know it's just a market effect. And now the game is, you know, extrapolate PPI in all of its components to what the PCE inflation number is going to say next week because that's the one that matters to the Fed. So, so far, I mean, look, 10-year Treasury yield pretty much went back up to Tuesday's high. It's about 4.3%, sort of at the borderlines of of the comfortable range that the market has uh, been treating it as for now. Uh, That yield sensitivity has mostly been in things like the Russell 2000 and the breadth of the market. Although that's game, that game is changing. I mentioned a couple times yesterday, uh, there's all this speculative stuff happening in, in, in precincts of the market. 
And Supermicro is by far the largest holding in the Russell 2000 right now. And it's literally material. Is it? Yeah. For I mean, how it moves. 1.8%. Right. Well, it's got a $60 billion market value. Yeah, it doesn't belong there. Right. It's obviously it doesn't gotten overgrown there. for the index. Yeah. And uh, it happened, by the way, with GameStop and AMC a few years ago. So mm-hmm. anyway, all these things, I think, get thrown into the mix in a market that otherwise was feeling pretty good about the backdrop. Yeah. But it does make you wonder, you know, we got that retail sales report yesterday, and that one was worse than expected. And a lot of people said, okay, well, there was weather, there was the holiday spending hangover. And all true, but when you get hotter than expected inflation reports and weaker than expected economic data, it's not as good of a mix as just the soft landing and the Fed has nailed it when it comes to inflation going back down and the economy slowly weakening. We don't want to have sort of stagflationary concerns. And I'm not saying that that's in the market necessarily, but that's why we're going to have to continue to watch the data points on all. We're going to get consumer confidence at 10 a.m. today from University of Michigan. It's partisan. So especially in an election year, you know, people answer these surveys, but it can also tell you a little bit about the way consumers. But the next big one is PCE, correct? That's on the 29th. So that's that's not till the end of the We're going to get Walmart and Home Depot earnings next week. And and Walmart always gives a good early read, I think. I mean, they were the first to mention deflation in goods prices. Last quarter, they mentioned a pickup in the the general goods merchandise. I wonder if that continues. And they will give us a read on whether the consumer is still spending into this year as much as they did at the end of last. Any other dynamics, Mike, that we should be thinking about as we sort of end uh, this I mean, kind of interesting trading week? So. It has yeah. been interesting. And I mean... The notable thing to me is the persistence of the rally. If we're up today or up this week in the S&P, and I think 5026 is the number we closed at last week at a record, um, you'll be up 15 out of 16 weeks and five in a row. I mean, usually you don't get these kinds of runs. Um, and it does show you that there's this underlying um, you know, bid in the market that's real, and it's responding to the fact that earnings have been much better than expected, even if they were considered to be, be, be you know, clearing a low hurdle. And then you have the excitable, erratic action in, like, all the speculative stuff I was saying. At some point in the last month, you've had all these charts go vertical. There's been ARM, there's been Supermicro, there's been MicroStrategy, and there's been a lot of stuff you never heard of. And I think that just sort of shows you the animal spirits. Part of that's just the bull market acting like a bull market. Um, but I think it's an interesting element that isn't as tightly knitted to the macro and the bond yields and the economic. Well, it's common in the face of rising bond yields and a strengthening dollar, which usually the market doesn't necessarily like. Let's turn to Nike because some news there. The company, the latest to announce job cuts. So Nike is announcing that it is reducing its workforce by 2%, about 1,600 jobs. They have about 80,000 people globally. John Donahoe, the CEO, sent out an internal memo to the entire team yesterday where he did announce this. I got my hands on it. The explanation for why he's doing it, I'll just read you part of the internal memo that he sent here. While interest in sport, health, wellness, and comfort has never been stronger, we are in a highly competitive industry where speed and end-to-end execution is critical to win. To compete, we must edit, shift, and divest less critical work to create greater focus and capacity for what matters most. And then another part, he went into where those opportunities are. We are redeploying our resources to increase investment in our most significant fields of play and growth opportunities, running, women's, and the Jordan brand. This is how we will reignite growth. So yes, it's a little bit of a story about the economy and where companies are, but for Nike, the story is where They've been hit by competition in many ways. Running, we know they've lost a little share. We don't know exactly how much to 
to yeah. your hokas, right, yeah. and to yeah. on and to some of the some, some of the the running shoes. Women's not sure they've kept up with the growth necessarily in that category that we've seen. And Jordan has huge opportunities, they think, when it comes to international and different categories like kids and women's. And so they're redeploying and sort of right-sizing the businesses to focus on the areas that they want to compete and grow. But the backdrop here is that they, you know, warned last quarter. Yeah. Guidance and top line has, has not been as strong as it has. And so they're emphasizing profitable growth. Looking at one downgrade this morning uh, to a... Uh perform, so to speak, at Oppenheimer. I it was just a very friendly it. downgrade. Yeah, it's friendly downgrade. Simply sort of saying, I mean, to your point, Sarah, that repositioning in the way that they are is going to take time. And until then, stock's probably not going to do much. That at least is the opinion of this one analyst. No, Brian Nagel, I pay attention to him. He's, he's, oh, yeah, that's yeah. Brian, right. He's, yes, he, we have him on Oppenheimer, he... He said just for a few quarters, I think, that the, the growth is going to be under pressure. And it's going to take a while because of things like, you know, innovation and... I think the macro as well plays a big role into Nike and that they don't necessarily deserve the premium valuation that yeah. Nike has had if they're not going to grow as much is the bottom line. And they've there. retained, you know, most of that. It's like 30 times earnings. It's still given a premium because of the brand value and because of the scale. Uh, but, yeah, it, it shed some light on, you know, them, decom- you know, kind of backing away from golf, which was a small part of the business. But this idea of refocusing, and it does fit in with, you know, you have this January reporting period where everyone's setting annual budgets, everyone's figuring out headcount, and a lot of companies anecdotally have these sort of trim refocusing type uh, headcount moves that haven't yet really aggregated into much in terms of, you know, official jobless claims. It's not in the macro data, no. uh, No, it's not there. And so it is, you know, it's trimming. I just want to add one more thing that I've learned about these job cuts. They're not going to affect the retail business. They're not going to affect the distribution or warehouse businesses. This is mostly corporate. Just... For those that are working in Nike stores and wondering, yeah, if they're really not dissimilar from many of the announcements yeah. that we've seen of a similar type. Uh, all right, still to come right here, we're going to break down the battle between Nelson Peltz and Disney. Just a few uh, days ago, Peltz joined our show, called out the company's board of directors. That's the problem here, Jim. This company is just not being run properly. The board oversight is is awful. Uh, it really is. Well, we're going to get a reaction. That lady right there, she is one of Disney's board members, and she will join us after the break. Let's give you another look at futures. We get started with trading 20 minutes from now. From here at the New York Stock Exchange, a lot more squawk in the street straight ahead. Let's start off with a look at Disney there. You can see the stock is up uh, almost 13% or roughly 13% since it reported earnings. That is the company last week. Also announced that new sports streaming app, of course, that's so gotten a lot of attention. This is the threat of Nelson Peltz and Tryan is looming. There's a proxy fight, of course. He wants two boards on the, on the board of directors of Disney and the annual shareholder meeting, really, what, six weeks or so away. Joining us now is Disney board member Carolyn Everson. She's also a board member, we should mention, of Coca-Cola and Under Armour. She ran Meta's advertising business for 10 years, 10 long years. (laughs) (laughs) And we want to talk about advertising, AI, but let's start off on this fight about Disney. Uh, Sarah had uh, Nelson join her a couple days ago. Um, And he's unsparing in his criticism of you directors of Disney. I mean, I guess we can just start off if you want to take a listen, Carolyn. Uh, You know, questioning whether you've been to the parks and whether you know anything about the media business. Take a listen, give your response. I wonder if the Disney board and the Disney management team 
Do they know anything about the media business? This company has put forth five losers in a row. Five. Think about that. That's a record. I, I don't know that anybody has put on five losing movies with brands like they have, Marvels, etc., in a row. All right, Disney board member, you want to respond to that? <laughs> I actually do. So, number one, I got married at Walt Disney World, which many people don't know. Been to every park around the world prior to becoming a board member. Been on five Disney cruises, two Disney Vacation Club memberships, and been to Walt Disney World with my family over 50 times. I am as passionate of a fan of Disney as you can get. So number one, um, I want everyone to know that the board is extremely engaged, both as a board member as well as consumers. Number two, Disney had six of the top 10 most streamed movies in 2023 across all platforms. And Moana, which we just announced, which is coming out in November for a theatrical release, was the number one most streamed movie on streaming in 2023, bar none. I joined Disney's board the day Bob Iger was asked to return as CEO. We did not have a prior relationship. I can tell you my observation, it was a brilliant decision of the board to bring Bob Iger back. He has fundamentally restructured the company. He's laid out his strategic priorities, ESPN being one of them. Of course, we're gonna launch flagship next year, 2025. We're very excited about our live sports franchises. We are refocusing on the creative and the theatrical side. Bob personally is spending a lot more time in partnership with Alan Bergman on that business. The streaming business, when Bob walked in, was losing over $800 million a year ago. And now we lost a little over $100 million. We're well on our way to profitability, which we promised the street. And we have real ambitions to have that be a healthy double-digit business going forward. Right. So my perspective is Bob Iger is by far and away the best person to be in that chair. He's got the company on um, a growth trajectory amidst a lot a of change. A growth trajectory? That seems yes. a bit, bit aggressive. I mean, a lot of it is cost-cutting at this point. And by the way, on yes. that point, Peltz again pushing back, both when we interviewed him and when Sarah did more recently, says, yeah, you know, you can have one good quarter. It doesn't mean you're going to have another. I've seen this movie before, so to speak, and they haven't delivered as much as they promised. We have every bit of confidence. We've cut $7.5 in costs, and, and we will continue to look for opportunities there. We feel very good and positive about the streaming outlook. I believe there's going to be a few streaming providers out there for consumers that are going to win, and I believe that Disney, Hulu, and ESPN are going to be very well positioned on that front. We have obviously reinstated the dividend post-COVID. We announced a share buyback. These but you feel are, confident as a director that you absolutely. can continue to deliver on that $7.5 billion of, of cost-cutting and or beyond? Without question. Disney has always been smart about capital allocation, and we have a fantastic new CFO in New Johnston who joined recently, and I feel very good about our discipline around how we allocate capital. What about the announcements last week around earnings? You know, Nelson did this this cartoon where all the he, very flattering portrayal of all of you guys throwing spaghetti at the wall. And it was a lot. It was the JV and it was the Taylor Swift and it was the one and a half billion dollars in Epic Gaming. And it, and, and it, and it feels like, and his, his accusation is it was about the election. It was about the proxy fight and that the company was doing a lot of razzle-dazzle to juice the stock. All I can tell you is Bob, when he came back into the CEO role, he outlined strategic priorities for the business. 
what to do about ESPN and the future of its streaming. He wanted the parks and resorts to be in growth mode across the board. He wanted to reduce losses in streaming and get that to profitability and reinvigorate the creative studio. He's acting on all of those initiatives along with his leadership team. I think the investment in Epic Gaming is a very smart one. I am Gen X, my twins are Gen Z. The switch in behavior between Gen X and Gen Z is extraordinary. Gen X spends about 17% in video gaming time, Gen Z, 32%. Movies, less for Gen Z versus Gen X. So what we're doing is we are responding as a company to the consumer and getting new offerings out there. And as a board member, I'd rather see action. I'd rather see execution and a commitment to reinstating growth than to sit idly by and allow the consumer changes to impact the company's growth. Can you explain the, the sports JV? Because it was a big deal when it was announced, but since then, you know, Justice Department might be looking into it. There are reports that the NFL isn't happy and wasn't aware of the of the uh, of the venture before it was announced and that there's some pushback from NFL owners. How's this going to work? ESPN's mission is to serve sports fans everywhere. And the way we think about it is in the in the re, in the materials we reviewed as a board is we looked at a spectrum of offerings. Everything from basic ESPN to the JV with Warner and obviously Fox as well as ESPN flagship that'll come out in 2025. Right now, as a sports fan, my daughters are college lacrosse players. Every weekend when we're looking for opportunities to watch sports, you're trying to figure out which service is putting what game on. You know, last night was, I wanted to see Caitlin Clark, um, you know, score the NCAA uh, point history, uh, which was incredible. But you have to figure out where you're going to find that game. Our objective at ESPN is to serve sports fans and give them a variety of options at different price points so that they can actually engage. And ESPN flagship, when it launches, is going to have incredible digital capabilities. What is going to differentiate it from conceivably this new app offering? Because there have been some who wondered, what's the need? Uh, fall of 2025, I think, is when you guys yes. are talking about that. But what is it going to look like, again, that's going to allow it to garner subscribers beyond what's going to go to the ability to get so much ESPN programming on the new app. I would say the difference is the JV is about viewing the sports on the platforms and the ESPN flagship is about interacting with sports. So think betting, think um, being able to have social commentary, eventually being able to buy products that you're seeing from your fan base uh, as a fan. So just think of an immersive digital experience. And I think part of it is the market has in their mindset that ESPN is a cable channel. ESPN launched their mobile app, you know, well over 10 years ago. ESPN is a digital sports platform serving sports fans, and we're really excited about the uh, offering next year. Um, Carolyn, the time we have left, let's move on yes. quickly to sort of some of the other things you continue to focus on, both as a board member of Coca-Cola and Under Armour and just in general. AI, generative AI, we've been talking about it now for, let's call it, the last 18 months. What are you seeing in some of the companies on which you sit, not to mention sort of in your other areas of expertise in terms of its use, what its impact's going to be on the advertising business, for example, and beyond? Yes, yeah, so Coca-Cola has been undergoing a marketing transformation. James Quincy in his earnings call this week, as well as I know he was interviewed um, on CNBC. 
uh, talked about the importance of the marketing innovation to the company, and it has fundamentally transformed the way Coca-Cola is going to market. They were one of the initial partners with OpenAI, and so we have access as Coca-Cola as well as WPP to incredible uh, cutting-edge AI technology. We're using it on consumer insights, content creation, shopper marketing materials. You're going to see now with the announcement last night, text to video that OpenAI announced. That will fundamentally change the way traditional video advertising is created, and Coca-Cola is on the forefront of that. So I see it fundamentally changing the industry. I think that content creation as we know it is now being done in milliseconds, and it's being done incredibly efficiently. Coca-Cola is benefiting from that efficiency, not just with the consolidation with WPP and the work that's being done there, but also just the way content's being created. It used to take literally weeks, if not months. Briefing, briefs used to be 25 pages. By the time it got to the agency, it was the message was often lost for marketers. Now AI can literally assist marketers in creating a brief. So I think you're going to see tremendous efficiency and likely effectiveness as it becomes more personalized. And what about, you know, that's the creation of the advertising. What about the distribution of it? And this goes up against Disney as well. You talk about the streaming success in hours watched, but, you know, you have the decline in linear TV advertising. It seems to be going outside of the traditional media companies, obviously, to the big players in digital. Is there anything that you can do to get in the way of some of that flow? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the things that we look at on the board of Disney, I look at it very simply. Disney has a large advertising business with traditional media assets, and now, of course, consumer behavior shifting into Disney Plus and Hulu and ESPN. Is the money moving? Can Disney capture those advertising dollars? And all indications are extremely positive. We launched advertising on Disney Plus in EMEA and Canada. We have 1,000 global advertisers advertising in Disney Plus now. That's up 10x from the launch. So what Disney needs to do, as well as other media companies, no question it's shifting out of linear. They need to have the right consumer proposition and engagement to capture those dollars. One more on Disney for me, which is why not Nelson Peltz? He's had a very good track record on big consumer-friendly companies like Procter & Gamble, knows his way inside a boardroom and the governance. Why are you guys fighting so hard? We have not seen a strategic plan or idea from Nelson and his team that would make us think about bringing him into the boardroom. And we feel very confident in the skills and capabilities. His accusation that no one knows the media business, I've spent almost 30 years in the media business, and others have some really great, fantastic CEO-level experience as well. And got married. I got married. I don't know what else more. How many cruises? Five Disney cruises, two Caribbean, Mexico, Alaska, and Europe. So I challenge anyone to do a Disney trivia with me. Uh, I will certainly not. Carolyn, always good to see you. Thank you. There we go. There's a picture. Oh, Oh, you see? Look at that. Yes, that was posted on Facebook. There you go. (laughs) Carolyn Everson, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. All right, quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. All right, let's take a look at uh, how futures are faring. We're, we're going to open uh, less than a minute from now. Mike, I'll turn to you quickly. Just give us a couple of words of wisdom, perhaps. Yep, we do have bond yields, 10-year testing uh, the earlier week highs above 430 on the hotter-than-expected PPI report. Interesting to set up. S&P did close slightly into record territory yesterday by a few points. We're working on another winning week. Uh, the one thing I keep flagging is 
A lot of this erratic, high-energy action in some of the speculative stuff. Super yeah. Micro boomed and already kind of had a mini crash before the Open this morning. Yeah, and that arm is another one we've been watching. Uh, many people, anyone who's short, this short arm over the last week or so has been very unhappy. All right, got an opening bell right here at the New York Stock Exchange, and you can take a look at the uh, real-time exchange as well. Get a sense for how the market's going to open. Here's the big boy, UBS. Said it, you know, we sort of circumnavigated what was a difficult CPI number in some way very quickly and somewhat easily despite a one-day And I think we're going to test the market's ability to, to kind of shrug these off uh, a little bit, not just because of this idea that, you know, inflation is maybe not going down in a linear way as we thought and the bond market's responding to it, but just the stock market itself has been on a great run. Uh, up 22%. A week ago, the, the line was, well, we've kind of hit a lot of the targets we thought we would. S&P 5,000, NASDAQ 100 hit 18,000, NASDAQ composite uh, touched 16,000, almost at the old highs. And then it was a matter of, do we need to take a break? We got a one-day break and, and, and nothing since then. All right. So, so now we game out why the market is being so resilient yeah. in the face of higher bond yields, rising dollar, and, and stickier inflation numbers. Now two instead of one. You might have expected a bigger sell-off at the open. So hear me out. The concern after CPI and now PPI is that the economy is overheating again, right? We don't want to see that. The Fed has spent the last two years fighting that. However, we got a really weak retail sales report and we got some weaker manufacturing data as well, industrial production. Housing starts today, we're weaker. That sort of pushes against the overheating yeah. and may just take us again into this soft landing period that the market can like, where the Fed can still be patient and look forward to rate cuts. I will say I'm excited to talk to Rafael Bostic. He's the head of the Atlanta Fed. He's a voting member, and he's going to be joining us on Money Movers today. It's going to be the first time we'll get real reaction to this twofer, the CPI and the PPI, after everybody else has come out and said, well, we can't make too much of one sure. data point. Well, how about two data points? He made some headlines already last night talking about the fact that victory has not been won yet on inflation, and he is perfectly happy to just wait and in no rush to raise rates. Well, and I'm just enjoying the fact that the market is backing me up by saying it doesn't need rate cuts soon or many of them in order to justify where we started the year and where we've gotten to right now. I mean, look, the next move has to be down. Um, I know there's some people at City saying, hey, listen, brace for the possibility that we don't actually go lower in rates. But in general, nothing has totally upended the idea that the economy is more resilient than we thought it was going to be. Even though retail sales was light, the economic surprise index has been really, really strong the last few weeks. And on the other hand, inflation is down a lot and in this 3% zone that investors can handle even if the Fed needs more. Um, certainly the chip sector led by NVIDIA has been one of the driving forces of this market uh, during this year. I want to start off with AMAT in terms of earnings, guys, and just take a quick look because the stock is responding quite positively to numbers that were, uh, I believe, above most of the analysts who follow the company's estimates, not to mention an outlook that did seem quite good. Uh, you got a number of analysts that are raising their price targets, not unexpectedly. The company's CEO uh, said as customers ramp up next-generation chip technologies, uh, they are positioned at key inflection points in the chip industry. 
it's all that they really needed to say. I mean, you know, the people wanted to also call maybe a bottom in the memory chip area. I mean, this is not the hot, you know, sexy area of chips that have been uh, getting people excited recently. But yeah, uh, and also not one of these crazy expensive stocks. It's CapEx, it's heavy equipment, uh, it's 24 times earnings, not nosebleed. So uh, that has worked. And then besides that, I think the earnings reactions to some of you know, the, the earlier stage stuff, we mentioned quickly Coinbase um, that had, you know, a, a somewhat surprising earnings uh, reported positive EPS yesterday. It's up 13 percent. And there's this whole class of stocks almost exactly three years ago, non-profitable tech peaked. That's when ARK Invest peaked. That's when, you know, the, the unprofitable cloud stocks peaked. And that's when the IPO index peaked. February 12th of 2021. So you had Coinbase go from 340 at a high down to 33. It goes down 90%. It's now about gained about half of the back, so 190. You have so many of these stocks in that situation, whether it is you know the, the Airbnbs or the DraftKings today is another good example. So it's, it's interesting that uh, you're having this echo effect of that boom with these companies at a slightly more mature state, but not yet at the sort of crazy high momentum levels that we hit back then. No, the maturity is an important point because yeah. if you look at the Coinbase numbers, so so just to reiterate, they did post a profit for the first time in a few years. Revenue jumped 51%. Transaction revenue nearly doubled from the third quarter. So clearly about there were some questions going into Coinbase about whether the new ETFs that were approved would cannibalize some of that revenue. Um, it turns out it did not hurt them. They're also a custodian, I, I believe, for about eight out of the 10 of the ETF. So that was beneficial as well. Even the most skeptical analyst on this stock, Dan Dolev, who we always have yeah. on from Mizuho, and he's still at underperform at a $60 target. He pointed out the take rate was down, but he even said, like, there's progress here, and yeah, he's happy I mean, to see it. I think the question is, the conditions were nearly perfect for, for Coinbase in the fourth quarter in terms of massive ramp in crypto, all this intense attention on the space because of the ETFs. On a full year basis, revenue is still down like 36%. So the question is, do they just need this constant you know, new flow of users and, uh, and turnover in that area? And um, you know, that's, that's the question. If you're bullish on, book, on Bitcoin, then you know, Coinbase is not, is not a crazy uh, valuation and right just here, but hit, otherwise you, it might be. You were talking about applied materials, you know, just to hit where that sits in the, yeah. in the chain. I mean, it's still thought of as a cyclical indicator because a, a lot of part, electronics, auto, they supply, I mean, their biggest, their biggest manufacturers are Samsung, Taiwan Semi, and Intel, and they make a lot of these future demand products. So they sit at a key part of the supply chain, and it's cyclical, and I think it's a bullish sign. It's not just about AI. It's up nine and a quarter percent after this, this bullish forecast that they gave. And the other interesting thing I thought here was, given all the restrictions around China, China was a big part of this quarter. Mm -hmm. I noticed that, obviously, the Chinese chip makers are building up, but sales there more than doubled, and they accounted for 45 percent of the company's total. So risk, but also clearly a positive here. Uh, and seems to be having a, a beneficial effect on some of the other names you might anticipate, including NVIDIA, which is up another 2.3%, sort of right near new highs at a $1.83 trillion market value. And again, of course, yeah. as we pointed out a couple of days ago, I was tracking it, it is larger than Alphabet at this point. 
Like we like to just, it's kind of fun it horse is. race to number three on the market cap uh, list of U.S. companies. Yes, and, uh, and, and it has much smaller economic footprint. I mean, it's amazingly profitable. The earnings estimates have been ramping. We're going to hear next week what the, ho- the whole pipeline looks like in terms of whether there's been some front loading of ordering and all the rest of it. But NVIDIA has also just taken the mantle as the favorite intraday plaything in terms of trading the stock, trading the options. Yesterday, NVIDIA had $75 billion worth of turnover in its own shares. Wow. That used to be Tesla. Tesla would be routinely 50 and above, and now it's it's NVIDIA, and it's, you know, five, six times what Apple and, and Microsoft trade in a day. So it just sort of shows you the level of fever in this area, and it's it's obviously pulling in other things from the supply chain. That's why there's people receptive to these kinds of moves in mm-hmm. ARM and Supermicro, and even Taiwan Semi. I mean, it has a great move recently. Yes. And because if you believe that somebody in the world collectively has to invest $7 trillion in semi-manufacturing, <laughs> then you buy everything <laughs> Anything and everything associated chain. with it. But I mean, not endorsing it, but that's, that's the idea. No, and you're referring, of course, to Sam Altman's effort to raise, uh, it, it's not even conceivable, yeah, of course. Yeah. $7 trillion. Uh, I mean, the Chips Act allocated $50 billion. <laughs> $7 trillion. Yeah, but, yeah. All right. Even if he comes close, it could be possible. Shopping around the world. Should we have DraftKings? That, that uh, stock, sure. That stock is not moving that much, but keep in mind it's had 150% run-up in stock in the last 12 months. Um, the company reported miss on the top and bottom line, but I think that was largely expected just because some of the some of the bets went the consumer way instead of the house's way. Um, the company still raised guidance, so reflecting some of the positive momentum in the business. They also announced an acquisition. They're buying a lottery app called Jackpocket for $750 million in cash and stock. We're going to talk to the CEO of DraftKings in Money Movers as well about that, about their new partnership with Barstool that people are talking about. Obviously, that has been probably a few months in the making since the breakup with Penn um, and, and about the Super Bowl. But in general, I think the, the read on DraftKings is that it was a healthy yeah healthy business momentum as more of the population can use sports betting, but it is increasingly a competitive space. FanDuel, some of the big guys are in it, like BetMGM, which had good numbers, and Caesars and Fanatics is entering the space. So all all playing out, but it's been an incredible stock over the last, I don't know, year or so. It's still off the long-term highs. Oh, way off the long-term highs. So this is definitely in that that situation of everyone got super excited about it a few years ago. Uh, Obviously, it was a SPAC, and it got, you know, caught up in a lot of these different uh, in, in these different little pools of excitement. But yes, uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you, you have to be aware of the, what's the market size here? Yep, a lot of states are going to legalize. I think it was a hundred, over $100 uh, average revenue per user in the quarter. Yeah. So, you know, you're pushing it, I think, on, on that level. It's been going in the right direction. Uh, but yeah, you have to believe that many, many more people are going to get into the legal sports betting pool yeah. over time. Um, Got a couple of uh, stocks that are notable for their declines on earnings. I'll start with DoorDash, and then I want to get to Roku. But shares of DoorDash uh, down almost 13%. You know, Mike, it's interesting. Well, I talked to one owner of the stock who obviously was positive on it, said in their mind it was a pretty good quarter in terms of the numbers. Not necessarily the reaction here. You can see that. Again, 
They did have an increase in revenues uh, and orders. There is a hope it may get added to the S&P 500 yeah. Yeah. as well. I'm sure you've heard that. Um, sure. But uh, not, I guess, at this point, up to what at least many investors had been hoping for. Yeah, I mean, all of the aggregate metrics are very good in terms of the gross merchandise volume, the order volumes that are growing extremely fast. It has that issue, though, of just when do they reach that scale when it actually flows to the bottom line and you know you model it out. They guided toward 1.1 to 1.2 billion in stock-based comp this year. I think that's been the run rate. So that's it's a familiar story. I mean, yep. in some ways, it's what you you had with Airbnb and what you had with Uber, where you had the platform is growing like wildfire, but how much of it are you going to be able to capture and and bring down to the bottom line? And what's the actual? you know, threshold of scale that gets you there. Sarah, like so many of these companies, they're stressing efficiency and expense discipline, uh, hoping to be rewarded for that, of course, the way many companies have been of late. At the same time, they're really trying to expand their offerings to consumers, partnering with, with grocery stores like Ro Royal Eholden, which owns Stop Shop, for instance, to start delivering. They have to increase awareness, and so they have to invest there while also talking about efficiencies. It's interesting that some of the analyst commentary was very positive as well, yeah. echoing your shareholder. And I think Truist and Oppenheimer raised targets on the back of these earnings, even though the stock is down. It had outperformed, I guess, going in year to date, going into this report. It still had a pretty good performance even this year even with this 12% decline, to your Some point. people thought that the Q1 guidance suggested a deceleration versus Uber Eats, for instance, which, which they projected an acceleration in the outlook. Perhaps that's raising some concerns. Um, yeah, who knows? I know. All right, we'll, we'll be watching the days ahead. Roku's the other name down some 18 plus percent uh, on a quarter that is not being particularly well received. There was a downgrade as well, again from Oppenheimer. They've been busy over there this morning to a perform rating. Uh, they simply say at this point, um, even where they're guiding revenue, uh, platform revenue is only going to be up an implied 9% uh, for the remainder of the year. And just generally some concerns there in terms of platform revenue being driven by streaming VOD advertising and price increases. Tony Wood, the company's CEO, joined Squawk Box earlier to give his commentary on the quarter. Take a listen. We had a really good quarter, a uh, great quarter, great year. I'm super confident in our business, uh, uh, more confident than ever. You know, we passed 80 million active accounts. We added 10 million new active accounts last year. Uh, you know, we passed 100 billion streaming hours, which was strong growth for us. Uh, you know, revenue in the quarter is up double digits. So we had a, we had a great quarter and, um, you know, we're really well positioned for the future. Well, there it is, Sarah. Has that assuaged any concerns you might have had with Roku? <laughs> I, I wasn't really concerned about Roku, but I think the big the big concern is the ARPA, right? The average revenue per user dropping by 4%. I mean, they beat revenue estimates, right, Mike? But there's been a sort of general slowdown in the media industry, and they're not immune to that in advertising, too. Yeah. And the question has always been, when it comes to Roku, is whether it was kind of a transitional technology, whether their moment was, you know, going to be fleeting. It gets integrated into smart TVs. They obviously have the third-party ad-serving business. So it's a business, but is it just, is it a company, you know, longer term? It's a feature. Um, and, you know, the more that other companies encroach, you have the Walmart Vizio thing, um, it just 
seems like their opportunity isn't as wide as it might have been at one point. Though they reached 80 million customers, yeah. which was a sort of new milestone. I um, just want to mention Coca-Cola. Carolyn Everson was here, the board member. Yeah. But Coca's in the news today. It did raise its quarterly dividend, 48 and a half cents a share from 46. A lot of people own these kind of stocks because of the dividends that they get paid. It's one of the appeals of consumer staples. So uh, Coke is lifting its dividend apparently for 62 years, making it one of a very limited number of companies to do that annually for more than yeah. 60 years. Um, it has that distinction. The dividend aristocrats. Dividend aristocrats. They... Pe- Pepsi raised the dividend in the middle of 2023. So there's kind of there maybe is a little bit of a competitive d- dynamic a little here bit. with they, the they, dividend. They've tracked over the years, um, and over the last 20 years, Coke has almost always had just a slightly higher dividend yield than Pepsi. Pepsi's, a, you know, with the snack business, it's growthier, so it's a little bit less. Yeah, Pepsi uh, yields about 3%, I think. Coke is around 5 They're both a bit more than 3%. Yeah, Coke's at 3.3% uh, dividend right. yield right it now. increased at 5%. Yeah. yeah, it's a little more than 3 So exactly. a little bit higher. Yeah. Um, That's similar. Mike, I did want to come back to DoorDash for a moment because you did mention stock-based comp, which is very high. Yeah. Uh, and there is some frustration on the part of, of some who talk about their adjusted EBITDA, of course, and how they get to it. And in fact, I'm told they don't even provide a reconciliation to Gap because mm. it would be too difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. Not to mention the venture capital. Yeah. So there are perhaps some investors who, who uh, you know, are not overly uh, happy with the way that yeah, they report. Yeah. I mean, they put it in Dash. kind of the too hard pile. I mean. The worst case scenario, in my mind, on that front is Snap. I mean, Snap will just never outgrow the stock-based company. Right. And, I mean, at least at this point, it seems like they will. It's an important point. We make it every so often. I know you do as well. Because we always go with these adjusted EBITDA numbers, and, of course, they often do not include stock-based comp, which, if you were to take it away, what are the companies supposed to do in terms of compensating their employees? Yeah, exactly. Look, if the stock, you know, goes to the moon, the company gets much bigger, you know, I mean... Facebook outgrew it. It's not a problem for some companies. But no, it is an issue. Also, the idea of getting into the S&P, I mean, there's no magic there. Tesla's down since it went in. Like, it's not like once you're in, you're automatically going higher. Had a lot of movers today. Had many more that will. I know we didn't even get to Bezos continuing to sell a lot of stock. Lilly to potentially a trillion dollars for healthcare stock. That's what Morgan Stanley says. Wow, 728 billion right now, Lilly. Yeah. That's the Nvidia of the healthcare space. Can't keep Lilly down. (laughs) Before we head to break, it is time for the bond report. Important day to do it, of course, with that hotter PPI wholesale inflation rate. Treasuries are selling off this morning, especially on the two-year yield, which is sensitive to the Fed policy rate, where yields are higher, 466, 10-year yield, 430. We're going to get consumer confidence at the top of the next hour. So a very heavy economic data week. And we'll discuss all of it for you with the Dow down 125. We'll be right back. All right. OpenAI has unveiled its new text-to-video model. It's calling it Sora. It generates videos up to one minute long based on whatever prompt a user types into a text box. Take this for example, if you use the prompt, the camera directly faces colorful building in Burano, Italy, an adorable Dalmatian looks through a window on a building on the ground floor. Many people are walking and cycling along the canal streets in front of the buildings. This is what you get. Wow, (laughs) look at that, we're done. I think it's time to hand in your resignation, everybody. They're just going to say, give me Sarah Eyes and Mike's intoling David right. Faber in digital form and, you know, have them tap my stocks. Nah. Um, no. Garbage. It's garbage? <laughs> well, they it's couldn't, get it. They couldn't possibly get it accurate. 
Wait, oh, no. this, they, this is this is the first. I mean, I what's this know, thing going to look like in two years, three yeah. years? So who does this displace, right? It's graphic designers, you want an, and video editors. You want another one? Let's see. We got another prompt here. Uh, step printing scene of a person running cinematic film shot in 35 millimeter. All right. But he's running backward on yeah, the treadmill. I can't quite figure out what it's that not is. Not quite there yet. It's shot in 35 millimeter, though. It did it. I mean. Look, the problem is we already have this problem with deep fakes. Taylor Swift is up in arms about this. And we have, this is an election year. So for this technology to come to the fore when the U.S. and 60% of the world population is have, going to the polls, elections. like what, that is very scary. And Nick Clegg you, is going to join us next hour from Meta to talk about this. Yeah, well, I'm curious to hear what they say. They talk about watermarking, but there yeah, are so many different say, ways yeah. around these things yeah. that it does raise the real possibility. I mean, forget deep fakes. These are, they got to come up with another word. Uh, at this point. I don't know though, did that Dalmatian look truly lifelike, like, like it was videoed? Yes. Did it? I mean, I mean, yes. Yeah. For the first iteration of this, I think exactly. it did. Exactly, first right. iteration. You're calling, you're calling, the, calling out the Dalmatian? You can tell be? that that's not a real Dalmatian? I'm well. sticking, I'm sticking to my prediction. We're all done for. All right. But <laughs> before that, we got breaking economic data. That's coming up right up to the break, so don't go anywhere. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer.